You're listening to Hypercritical, episode number 22. This is a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. You see, nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. We would like to say thanks to FreshBooks.com and Feltip.com, makers of Sound Studio 4, for making this show possible. We'll tell you more about them as the show goes on. Hey, John. Hey, Dan. So you're back from WWDC. Big week for you. First WWDC. Finally have some clarity to think back on. I'm sure you've been busy writing your uh, Lion expose. I've, I've been trying to. Waiting for them to change things again. They, they keep changing things. There was a, there was an update, what, two days ago or something. Yeah. Changed a bunch of stuff. At this point, I, I should just give up taking screenshots and just... <laughs> It's not just screenshots, like adding and removing features. It's just, it's tough. But yeah, I'm I'm writing slowly, and it's a slog, and I don't know if I'm going to make it. Well, you and you need to, typically, you release your write-up, your big write-up, your 50 to 60 page document, Tome of Wisdom. You usually release that the, the same day that Lion actually hits the streets, right? Or that the OS in general. For the past two or three releases, I've had my review ready on the day that it releases. But occasionally, ours holds it back uh, for traffic reasons. Uh-huh. So again, uh, so, again, I'll, I'll say what you can't, and shame on them. Well, I mean, they, they, they have a point with the numbers. If you release something on a Friday or a Saturday, forget it. It just dies, no it's matter gone. what it is. Yeah, Except, uh, except so, this show, by the way. Well, yeah, it's you know, podcasts are different than uh, than websites. Is pe- I guess people read at work or something. I'm trying to figure out why it is that that the numbers are so skewed, uh, but they really are skewed. Like you do not want to re- release something on the eve of a weekend because it will not get read. But if you release on a Monday or Tuesday, it gets read like crazy. I guess it's people reading at work because you know once once they're not at work, they're not sitting in front of the computer all day. They do fun stuff on the weekends. They don't read, but uh, podcasts are some of that fun stuff. I think so. People like to listen to podcasts on weekends when they clean the house or go for a run or whatever, I guess. I guess. I don't know. I'm like, I'm one of those people that my, although I might not be recording on the weekends, my habits don't change that much. I mean, you know, you do more with family, but I'll still read stuff on the weekend. In fact, the weekend is sometimes that's the only chance I get to read stuff. Yeah. Well, we're not average people in that regard. Have have you ever looked at your numbers and seen if there's, well, I guess it's weird because like iTunes downloads them and and that's the only Tick that you get on your servers, and then God knows when people actually listen to it. So, it's yeah, hard that's to say, that's but. the thing. You can see when people download it, and typically most of the downloads happen in the first twelve hours after the show comes out. Although certain shows that uh, they can have like a resurgence or something, but typically most of the downloads, regardless of the day, that they happen within the first twelve or twenty four hours. And like you said, I have no idea when people are listening, and sometimes it's the same day. But it seems to follow a pattern. If we release something like in later in the day, people are getting it and they're usually listening to it next day because the next day I'll see all these tweets about, oh, you know, you and Syracuse have said this, but it's a day, you know, they're hearing it the next day typically, which is okay. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. As long I, as they're not listening at the, double speed. Yeah. I see the, the delay too. Like after we've done the show and I've, you know, forgotten about it. Two days later, there'll be this big flood of feedback and tweets and stuff like <laughs> right. that. So people are on a lag. You're like, oh, people are still talking about that? That was a year ago. Yeah. All right. So you're trying to break my format here, although I really don't have any follow-up. We should have done that at the beginning. I don't, the, I don't have anything from past shows. Well, I guess my main topic today is follow-up because it's 
WWDC announcement related. Mm. Uh, I, I do have a small topic to complain about before we get to the main topic, which is really only related to complaining and not so much related to technology or Apple, but since when has that ever stopped me? Uh, so th- the other day I was searching for something on Google for use in my review, actually, uh, and I was searching for basically an audio clip from an episode of The Simpsons, many of which are stored neatly in my brain and can be recalled at a moment's notice, but I wanted the actual audio, you know. And So other, other my, people besides you could hear it. Yeah, and in my estimation, that's fair use, right? Like, if you want a two-second clip from The Simpsons to use Where in would an you article. Be, oh, you're using it in an article, actually. Yeah, I, I always have sounds linked to stuff in an article. It, it amuses me to do it, and it doesn't bother most other people. Like, there's a blue underlined word that if you were to click on it, would play a sound from The Simpsons. Does that add to the article? I don't know. It <laughs> makes it more enjoyable for me to write it, certainly. Uh, so, yeah, I've always had those in my reviews. Uh, and I just thought, oh, I'd like to get that one. Now, we have the internet, which seems like a great match for The Simpsons. Obsessive nerds, computers, surely I can find the exact quote that I want, which, if I remember, is probably a fairly famous quote and not just some random line from an episode, and extract that little bit of audio. And to find the audio, usually what you're looking for is video, because it's hard to find audio only. Uh, So I do a quick Google search. Usually you just have to type Simpsons, and then in quotes, whatever the line is, assuming you remember it exactly, and then uh, do Google Video search for it. Now, what you'll find if you've ever done that is that you get tons and tons of hits. So no matter how obscure the quote is, just make up, make up anything that you can think of from The Simpsons ever. And as long as you quote it remotely correctly, type Simpsons, that phrase, hit search, click the video, you will see a big scrolling list of screenshots of the episode that it was from, uh, and it was going on for pages and pages. And that would make you think, oh, the internet is working. Google is working. I can find anything I want, any piece <laughs> of pop culture at a moment's notice. You know, right. Again, it's not like I'm, I'm looking to pirate The Simpsons. This is a, it, using a small excerpt as part of some larger paper, it's, it's the, the textbook example of fair use. But if you look closer at those results or perhaps click on one of them, what you will find is that every single one of them is a link to a site that may be a reputable site, like say YouTube. You say, oh, YouTube, it's number one hit. Simpsons episode, I recognize that scene. It's the exact scene that I wanted because I can see the thumbnail on Google. I click on the YouTube result, and what you get is a fake video, like it's a video that has no content other than a static image of text. <laughs> and the text has arrows pointing downwards to the description saying, click that description underneath this video. Totally click it, guys. Click that description. And in the description <laughs> is a link to some shady Russian or other foreign site that you know, God knows where it is. And if you want, if you were to click on that, you will enter the the rat hole of porn scam, Viagra ads, viruses. God knows where online you're going. gambling. Is, yeah, you will not find your video, or if you do find it, who knows what you've done to your computer. And so you're like, all right, well that one is a scam. Let me go back to the search results, try the next one. They're all like that. .pl, .ru, even tons and tons of things on YouTube. It kills me that they're on YouTube. Can YouTube not tell? Hey, if someone uploads a video that's three minutes long and all it ever shows is some text telling everybody to click the thing below the video, which takes you to a scam porn virus site, you know, remove that video. And and I don't quite know how they do it. I'm sure there's some. They probably have a single frame in exactly the center of the video that shows the the 
a frame from the Simpsons episode, but they don't get taken down on copyright violations because it's not the Simpsons episode. <laughs> Even though there's one frame at exactly 50% mark or whatever, whatever YouTube uses for the poster frame, right? So that's why you get thumbnails of all the episodes. And it's just a wasteland of pages upon pages of essentially fake versions of Simpsons videos, right? Now, if I really wanted to get this, like if, if I was determined, I would just, you know, fire up the, the BitTorrents and find the actual episode and download it and extract the piece I want. It's not like I can't get this stuff. But what, what kills me about this is that Fox or whoever owns The Simpsons, I'm assuming it's Fox, they have a brand. People want to know about it. But when anybody searches for anything related to that brand, they get tons of scam results. Wouldn't it serve Fox better to put the entire archive of The Simpsons up in a way that they are the number one search result and that if they don't, if they don't want to lose money in like DVD sales or Hulu or whatever they want to make their money on, don't let people watch the whole episode, but let people say, oh, I remember this quote from this particular episode. Find that episode, let them scrub through it and let them watch for like three seconds before it you know, stops letting them watch and says, you've exceeded your fair use viewing of this or if you want to buy the episode, click here. You know what I mean? Like convert that guy into a customer at that point or show ads or do, do something, but make you have a property that you are abandoning and leaving to the scammers and the scammers are all over this. There may be things like the Simpsons that are, that are worse, but this is the worst Simpsons is the worst one that I've seen. It's just a hundred percent scam links and they totally wipe out any possibility of, of finding the, the content you want. So that's just a sickness on the internet that it's like people who don't understand how the internet works and fear it, retreat from it, leaving their reputation and their property to be defined by criminal scam artists and other unsavory individuals. It's just depressing. And this is, this, that was part of the follow-up somehow? No, it was, it was after the follow-up, but it was before that the was a to- That was a uh, secondary level topic. Well, if you want to link it to the follow-up, you could say this. Well, it, it happened when I was writing my article, and the article was about Mac OS X based mm. on the things I saw at WWC, and we talked about WWC on the last show. There you go. Now, they're calling it, Six, o- they're calling it OS X now more than Mac OS X. Yeah, I saw that in the posters of WWDC, but I didn't think too much of it because we've seen before Apple sort of make a feint in this direction. Do you remember when, I forget when it was, it was a couple of years ago when they said uh, the iPhone uh, runs OS X and they, would, they had it in all the slides as O, S, space, and then a capital letter X. And the Mac runs Mac OS X. And for like four days in the media, all the Apple press was like, well, okay, so this is, this is what Apple says. This is our new distinction. There's Mac OS X, which runs on Macs, and there's OS X, which runs on iPhones. Right. But they retreated from that really quickly. Maybe it was less than a week. And eventually, the thing that runs on iPhones was named iPhone OS, and that name stuck with us until it was ridiculous because they had iPod Touch running it and iPad and everything like that. And then they renamed it to iOS because obviously it's not just iPhone OS. Uh, so when I saw the OS 10 posters, I'm like, is that just because it fit better typographically? Or are they going to change their mind on this again? I didn't really think anything of it. But after WWDC, when they updated their the Apple.com website, if you go to Apple.com slash Mac OS 10, it now, instead of showing Snow Leopard, it now shows Lion. Even though Lion's not out, they're like, here's this upcoming OS for you. And all over that site, it's OS 10 everywhere. Uh, so I think they're sticking to their guns in this case. Why, why are they doing this? It doesn't really make that much sense to me. I've been trying to think about like what the end game is. If you are, are they going to try to umbrella brand the software, the operating system that runs on their mobile devices and on Macs? 
and, and this is independent of the thing that everyone was always talking about with the, like, are they going to merge the OSs? Is it going to be one OS? Or, you know, is Mac OS X going away and there will only be iOS? All, all those technical concerns about what happens to the actual lines of code, put those aside and let's just talk about branding because you can brand stuff however the heck you want. They can come up with one name. They could call it, you know, uh, Barney or something and say, this is the name for our operating system and it runs on our devices and on Macs and it will be a total lie because their code bases are entirely, you know, well, not entirely separate, but you know what I mean. They're they're entirely different products uh, and they share the core OS, but they've always shared the core OS. They could just decide one time to to brand it in that way. Um, the, I was thinking about this and first I, was th- I got stuck on thinking, so what do you call that thing? What do you call, if they wanted to umbrella brand their operating system to emphasize the fact that Unlike some other vendors, they just have one operating system. Like like Microsoft has Windows on the desktop, and then they have the Windows Phone, which are clearly two distinct operating systems, probably share much, much less than iOS and Mac OS X do. So if Apple wanted to stress that it has the same core OS, you know, the same underlying layers, almost all the way to the top between the two OSs, they would come up with a single name. What would that name be? Uh, OS X doesn't make sense, especially now that they've chosen to use that for Lion, because that is not distinguishing enough. They're already used iOS, which would be the obvious umbrella name choice because the, the Apple Apple's naming lately seems to be take the obvious word for the thing you're thinking of and stick I in front of it. iMessage, iPhone. Uh, I guess FaceTime breaks that trend, but there's, there's a lot of I obvious word names coming out of Apple lately. Uh, MacBook is not great either, but at least that's not an I. Um, but iOS is already taken. It's for the, for the mobile only. They could say well, that's going to be our new umbrella name, and we're going to absorb Mac OS X into that. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought that if you umbrella brand these things, then there'll be an expectation that applications for whatever the name is will run any place that runs whatever the name is. And that's easy to make true for on Macs, because Macs can run iOS apps no problem. They do it in the simulator all the time. Apple can make that official anytime it wants. It's no technical hurdles. The code is pretty much all the way done. Uh, it would work fine. But you certainly can't run Mac apps on your iPhone or your iPad or anything like that. So I, the more I think about it, the more I think umbrella branding of the OS will never come to pass as long as there are what we think of as Mac applications that are not designed for touch. Uh, and I don't see that changing anytime soon because certainly Lion is not saying, hey, all Lion developers or Mac developers, make all your apps usable through touch. No, it's not what Lion is about at all. Uh, so... I'm thinking no umbrella branding for a while, and I really have no idea why they took out the 10. The only conspiracy theory I can come up with, or they took out the Mac, the only conspiracy theory I can come up with is the old one. This is from way back of anytime Apple did anything remotely in this direction, people would say, oh my God, they're going to let you run Mac OS X on non-Apple hardware, and that's why they wanted to take the Mac out, because now it's OS X and it can run on Dells and Compacts too. Uh, th- that old, you know, again, technically possible, the whole yellow box thing, Running it on, it was, was the old one where you were going to run applications on top of Windows, on top of the yellow box, and then the change was, let's just let people run Mac OS X on any hardware they can buy out of the box, Hackintosh stuff. I don't think any of that's happening. Well, John, John Gruber, our friend, uh, John Gruber of Daring Fireball, co-host of a, another show we do here called The Talk Show, wrote, re- related to what you were saying, he says, I'm pretty sure the only reason Mac was ever put into the name of the OS was for the ill-considered cloning era. Prior to the clones, it was just called System 7, System 6. They renamed it to Mac OS, so there'd be some sort of Mac involved on machines that themselves could not be called Macs. So it, it's almost like the inverse of what you're saying. 
instead of this being some kind of implication that Apple's going to do that again, it's, it's going back to that time period and saying that was the only reason they put the word Mac in there anyway, because these essentially what were essentially PC vendors uh, selling machines that could run the well, you know previously System 7. They could have called it System 8, but instead it was Mac OS. Yeah, I, I buy that. Although whatever the original motivation was, it became a, a branding tool. You know, Macs run Mac OS. It was a way of describing the thing that runs on Macs. If, you, if it was just called System, when people talked about it, you know, do you have System 8, System 7, System 12, whatever, there would be no context and you wouldn't be reinforcing the Macintosh brand. Uh, that's kind of why I like, like the MacBooks, you know, they're, they chose to put Mac in front of that. They ditched power and put Mac in front of it. You yeah. know, the same thing with the iBook. They chose to put Mac in there because they wanted to work on the Mac brand. And maybe that was that gets back to the conspiracy theory. It's like, well, that's a piece of hardware. You know, certainly they weren't calling it MacBook to differentiate it from other books that also run their operating system because that was not mm. happening. Then they put the Mac on the hardware, but they don't put the Mac on the software. Does that mean the software can run on something other than Macs? I don't know. It's so hard to tell with marketing and branding. It's so much of it is just taste and whim. Uh, so I'm. I'm I wouldn't even know what to read into it, and I'm just trying not to read anything into it. What, what bothers me the most is that now, like, do I have to go back and search and replace in my review Mac OS X with OS X? It just looks weird to me. It looks kind of naked, and I'm not used to it. Plus, and then I can't do a global search and replace, because anytime I refer to Snow Leopard, that was called Mac OS X, so I can't call that OS X 10.6. I have to call it Mac OS X 10.6. I wish I could just make up their mind, is what I'm saying here. Do you oh, remember at what point, well, not to interrupt you, do you remember at what point... Uh, they stopped calling them Macintosh and just really called them Macs. I mean, was that from the very beginning? I seem to remember always just calling them Mac, but at what point at What point were they not really pushing that as much? At what point did they stop uh, I, using it on their product? I think uh, the beginning of the end of that was when the iMac was introduced. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, it was Power Macintosh G3. Right. Know? Power Macintosh G4. I believe it was also Power Macintosh G5. Somewhere a little bit after that, the word Macintosh spelled out the long way that Apple does, pretty much disappeared. And now it, it's not on any of their products anymore, certainly. Uh, and it's hard to even find it on their website unless you're looking at an old product. So that, that faded out fairly recently. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, when, what was the last machine? Maybe somebody can tell us on Twitter. What was the because I'm not going to chat room today. What was the very last Mac that said Macintosh on it? Actually, on the hardware or on the product materials. I can find that out for you in a couple of seconds. I here. hope so oh. because I don't want to. I don't want to end the show not knowing this. Yeah, let's see. All models. Let's look until the Macintosh name disappears. All oh, the iPods are all mixed in. Uh, IMAX, IMAX. So much for two IMAX, seconds. iBooks. Yeah, well. And the, the sound of somebody else searching is not the best way to fill time, I don't think. All right, well, I w- I'll look it up and uh So we, don't, we, don't, notes, we don't need Twitter responses, is what you're saying. Yeah, although the chat room, you know, this is what the chat room is for. They should add I that can't look at it. I can't look at it today. Two seconds. I know, I'm, I'm in it, though. You're, you're uh, so soaking. Getting back to what... Uh, what Gruber was saying about the, uh, the the time of the clones and everything, right. I finally got a chance to listen to that uh, thing that went around, which was showing Steve Jobs' closing keynote at WWDC oh. 1997. Yeah. 
did you listen to that? Yeah. Or watch it? Watched so, it. So that was great to watch. And it it's great to be reminded of how different things were back then. Like pe- people were listening to it because they wanted to hear, let's hear how well Steve predicted the future. Like he said he was going to do all these great things and people laughed at him, but look that he did them. And there's a lot of that in there. He, he outlined a strategy and some broad strokes of what Apple should do that sounded ridiculous in the context of him saying it sounded like, who's this guy? Who's this blowhard? Like, yeah, sure. Make that happen. And he did it. He did it like beyond even his own expectations probably. But there are other aspects of it that are so unlike the Steve Jobs and Apple that we know today. In particular, I was thinking about related to the cloning thing, his position on cloning. Like you were, if you were to ask any modern Apple hater, uh, you know, I have a video of Steve Jobs in 1997 and someone asked about clones. What do you think he said? I bet he said that you're not allowed to clone at all. And there'll be no clones and it has to be closed box and you're, we're going to use super special screws so you can't even open it up. And if anything breaks, you have to throw it in the garbage and buy another one. Uh, that was my PC user impression. That was great. But if you, if you look at what he actually says, what he says is that he thinks... The cloners, at that point, the, the clone makers were being given reference hardware designs from Apple. He says, we shouldn't be giving them reference hardware designs. Let them build whatever the heck hardware they want. They don't need any help from us. We will license them the OS at a price that we decide is fair, and they can build any hardware they want. You know, they don't have to copy our hardware. They can make better hardware, cheaper hardware, whatever. You know, let them, let them go nuts. He was, there's not a single bre- thing that he said in that thing that was anti-cloning. If anything, he was more sort of laissez-faire of just let those guys do what they want. Now, he was definitely uh, down on Apple losing money. What he, his big thrust was, we're going to charge you a lot to license Mac OS X. And in fact, if you only make really expensive computers, we're going to charge you even more. Because if you just make really <laughs> expensive computers, that's our high-margin products. And you know we have to give you some motivation to make low-margin products. You know We're not going to just have all the low-margin products and you take all the big high-margin product, products. And we're going to structure our licensing to make that happen. So he was definitely looking out for number one, but he was 100% on board with the cloning thing. And he was also 100% on board with Intel. It's like, if someone wants to make uh, an Intel machine, uh, and you can run Rhapsody on Intel on it. You know, it was the Rhapsody era, too. So that's another, uh, <laughs> it's another strange uh, vestige of the past. Most people don't remember that uh, the plan was to take Next Step and port it to the Mac pretty much wholesale and continue to distribute the yellow box for Windows and other ways of running your applications on things that weren't Macs. And Steve Jobs was 100% down with that. He was like, yep, go for that. That'll be great. Didn't happen, obviously. Uh, He made mention in in the actual Q&A, he said, you know, some developer asked about uh, holes in the product lineup that, that Steve thought developers could fill. And he said, well... You know, Adobe and Microsoft, as far as I know, haven't signed up to to port their applications to Rhapsody. So what are you guys waiting for? You know, there's no Photoshop on Rhapsody. There's not going to be any Office. Huge openings for you to become the next Office or Photoshop, which is kind of ridiculous on its face. And we all know how that actually turned out. How it turned out was that Adobe and Microsoft say, yeah, we're not porting to that. And Apple says... Okay, we'll change our OS strategy so you so we'll get your application. So right. the next year or the year after, he was on stage saying, "Look, here's a version of Photoshop running on Carbon. Isn't it great?" Uh, so I hope no developers took his advice and decided to work on the next Photoshop killer, only to have that entire OS strategy scrapped. Uh, but but at least you can say that the next OS strategy was the last in the long distinguished line of next generation Apple operating system strategies. And by the way, I've been told on Twitter by Dwayne Sibley. Sibili? 
Balthonis is his uh, Twitter moniker. He says, a Power Macintosh G5 was the last model to have Macintosh in the name. Yeah, so there you go. I was close. But I, that, that might be in their product material. What was the last? I don't think, does, does, the, does the, the, the Power Mac or the Mac Pros, do they actually have anything printed on them? Or are they yeah, all? The, where is it printed? G three had the G three had Power Macintosh somewhere on it. Did the G five? Mine's in a box. Uh, certainly the box did. I don't think the name was printed on the G five. And there was a G five on it. Maybe was there a G five? No. When they went that. to the aluminum That's chassis, cool. though, I think I, I don't think there was any of that. Yeah, you're telling me something's printed on the aluminum the way it is on the on the MacBook Pro. Well, they have the Apple logo on both sides. I think that's that's it. it. The, the G3 had a G and a three underneath the little plexiglass. Did you ever have one of those? Though this could be a good segue. Did you ever have one of those wind tunnel Macs? The G5 with the wind tunnel? No, I. Uh, yeah, wasn't the G5. The wind tunnels were were the, the G4, G4 rather. Yeah. yeah, I had one of those. I had the the blue and white G3, which was a great. great oh, I great love that. Machine. That's my favorite Mac of all time. That lasted me a really long time, and then I skipped the entire G4 series, which was kind of a blessing because that was just a like the first G4s were okay, but then they got weird and evil, uh, and jumped right from the G3 to the G5, which was a big upgrade and well worth it, and used that G5 for a long time. But the, I gotta say, this Mac Pro that I have now is the the best Tower Mac that I've owned in terms of just like the things that I care about, you know, uh, expandability, noise, so far reliability, fingers crossed. Uh, ease of getting into and out of it, uh, all that good stuff. Uh, it's so much quieter than my Power Mac G5 was. has so fewer, many fewer annoying things like the chirping power supply and, you know, video cards dying and, and excessive heat and stuff like that. So I'm really happy with this one. So happy, in fact, that I'm wondering, like, what's going to make me buy another Mac Pro? I, I, I could probably wait another year or two years before I get another Mac Pro. Well, this, this actually, this right. could be a segue, John, into into this discussion, unless you have more follow up or anything. Well, no, actually, I have. I do have a main topic today. If I can, oh, we can't go into the topic that I I wanted to do. We'll do. Well, yours. go ahead. You know, no, no, see, that's, no go ahead. Uh, hey, I usually give you a list of topics, then you pick. So why don't you give? No, me your no, topic? I want your topic. That's what the people want. This is your show. What, what's your topic? <laughs> it won't be long. I don't know what. How long do you have to? Do you have a deadline? We, have to eh, we got time. All right. Well, but actually, we'll keep them in suspense. Before we say it, we'd like to thank FreshBooks for sponsoring today's episode. You know, I love doing this stuff. I don't love invoicing. I don't love the accounting side of the business, and FreshBooks makes this incredibly easy. What they are is they're an online invoicing service. It just They save you time. They get you paid faster, and they make you look like a pro. It's that simple. And getting started is totally free. You can do any any kind of invoice, and they've got the workflows down. You can do a re- recurring invoices. You can create new clients on the fly while you're making a new invoice. All these little things that that are hard to do in every other system are just simple to do here. And uh, you should really go check it out. And here's another cool thing that they're going to do for 5 by 5 For listeners of Hypercritical, every week they're going to give away a birthday cake. Now, I've heard from people who have received these cakes, and they claim that they're amazing cakes. And you could win one just by when you go there and you sign up for your free account. Well, it starts free. I think at some point they want you got to pay something. But it's free for a while. When you're signing up, there's a place where it says, how'd you hear about us? You type in there, hypercritical, and, or I love John Syracuse. Either one of those will work. And uh, they will pick somebody every week and send them a birthday cake. So you go do that at freshbooks.com. Okay, well now, now what's your topic? 
you know, the key part of that promo is that it's a birthday cake. It's not just a cake. Yeah, it is it's a, birthday. a birthday. It's decorated cake. as if it was a for a birthday. But it doesn't have to be a birthday. You don't have exactly. to be having it. But that's the, that's the key part of that promotion. You just have the cake. That's no good. You have a birthday cake. Now you've got something. <laughs> You're right. right. Thank you for uh, clarifying. So this is like carryover from WODC. Because we did a really long show about WWDC, but still so many things in my mind. Uh, never mind all the stuff that I can't talk about because of NDA. Uh, this this is about iCloud, which I know I talked about a lot on the other thing, but that really was the big announcement. It's still And everything about iCloud is still like stewing in my mind, especially since it's not like they released it on that day and everyone could go download it. It's still like, here's what we're planning on doing, and you know there's some sort of beta access and there are some APIs, but we don't know like in practice what it's like to use iCloud. Even developers don't because the developer stuff they have for you is not representative of what the experience will be like when the product is introduced. So I'm still in the, in the mode where I'm thinking about, I'm trying to handicap Apple's odds. Like, because again, we've, we've, talked, we've done past shows about how bad they are at this online service stuff. Uh, and iCloud, they said most of the right things, uh, but I'm still dubious about it. Uh, so one thing I was thinking about is, the nuts and bolts of like, also we've had other shows where we talked about how uh, I thought Google's biggest advantage was their data center operations. So I was thinking about what do the best online companies do on the server side? How how do they operate? What In broad strokes and specifically, how do they make their online services, uh, you know, make them work? And so the three ones I picked to, to, talk, to talk about are Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And I would say if you had to pick three of the best online service companies, those would be right up the top of most people's lists. No one's going to argue. You can argue about how much you like the companies or their products, but if you're talking about someone who has built a business online and has been successful at scale, that's really what I'm talking about is a scale because Google scale, Facebook scale, Amazon scale, that's the scale that it seems like Apple wants to work on. And especially if since iCloud is free and it's going to be an integral part of every device it sells. Do you know how many iPhones are out there? Should have a There's like 100 million or something. But it's big. It's a big number. And I would bet the number uh, of mobile me subscribers is, you know, one one hundredth of the number of people with iOS devices. So presumably, eventually, all iOS devices that are still functioning will be iOS 5 running iCloud because it's free. I'm assuming everyone will opt into it because why wouldn't you? You get all these features unless you're super paranoid about privacy, which, believe me, people are not as evidenced by the popularity of Facebook. Uh, so iCloud is going to have to scale at you know, much higher than anything Apple has ever done with the possible exception of the iTunes store. But I, and everyone throws the iTunes store in my face when I complain about Apple being bad at online, but the iTunes store is perhaps the simplest possible online service when compared to the things that like, you know, Amazon, Google, and Facebook do. It's almost entirely reads where you're, you're reading about reading the catalog, downloading stuff that doesn't change that frequently. It benefits tremendously from caching and distribution and the only thing you write are the transactions when you, you know, do something when you purchase something. Uh, so it's the simplest possible e-commerce site. I know it's complicated with all the CDNs and how they they get this the stuff distributed and they have the client software. I'm not saying it's easy, but compared to an online service that has a significant portion of rights, it's much tougher. Like think about Facebook, where most people are just browsing Facebook, but there's the expectation that when you post a little comment or something and you and you click the button to submit it, when the page loads again, you see your comment. Right. And not only do you see it, but other people see it too. It wouldn't be acceptable for you to submit the comment, and then they bring you back to the page, and you don't see your comment. And then you reload, and you see it, but then you reload again, and you don't see it. But then you reload, and you, you know, that's the t- that type of eventual consistency that you can get away with 
on things like the iTunes store where it's like, oh, if not everyone sees this new album that I added, they'll see it in five, 10 minutes. They'll be fine. With a read-write service, you need to be responsive to changes immediately. And there's no margin for, yeah, you'll see your comment eventually. Like, unless you give them a message and say, your comment will appear in 10 minutes, people will be like, what the heck? I, I, when I submit my comment, I want to see it immediately. You know, read-write services are much harder, especially with multiple users and concurrency and making the updates appear everywhere, doing minimal updates to, uh, to things instead of updating you know, more than you have to. So anyway, here's how these companies do their server-side stuff. I'll start with Google. So the first thing that Google has is they do their own hardware, which sounds crazy but probably won't in, in a few minutes. They do that because one of their significant costs is the electricity to power their data centers, to power the cooling and everything like that. So if they can reduce the power consumption of their computers and the, or the density of their computers, they have to pay less for cooling, they have to pay less for electricity, and it makes a big dent in the budget. And they just feel like they can design a custom piece of hardware that is cheaper and more efficient than they could get something off the shelf. And Google's big thing also with their hardware is not only is it custom hardware, but it's not custom fancy hardware. It's custom crappy hardware. All their stuff is built with the expectation that the hardware will fail. They use crappy commodity disks, off-the-shelf you know, pieces for the CPUs. It's not, it's not like a really fancy, you know, those sun boxes that used to be the size of refrigerators and they cost tens of thousands of dollars and they were all purple and had cool lights in them and stuff. And there was you know, a custom backplane switching network inside, connecting the, the CPUs and all, you know, that's not what Google is about. They're about cheap, simple commodity pieces that they assemble. Maybe they have a one or two, you know, maybe they have a custom motherboard that, that they commission someone else to make or whatever, but it's not, it's not because it's fancy. It's because they just want the components they want. Everything else they don't, they don't need is removed. There's no 5.1 stereo Dolby chip on Google's <laughs> right. on Google servers. But if you buy an off-the-rack Dell, who knows what's on that motherboard that you're not going to be interested in using, right? Uh, so that's their that's their hardware, and then what they run on top of it is basically a suite of almost entirely custom software. Now they run Linux, which is the basis of all their stuff. So that's not custom; that's that's their commodity operating system. But on top of Linux, they run their software that creates an infrastructure. Like Linux is practically the firmware for their stuff. So mm-hmm. the, the big one that everyone's heard of probably is MapReduce, which is uh, a way of well, the MapReduce as a concept is a way of taking a task and splitting it up into pieces that can be done in parallel. Uh, and MapReduce within Google is a framework for doing that across many computers. So you, you structure your job as a series of, of steps, that, you know, a map step and then reduce step where you take a bunch of data and map it to one thing and then coalesce it and so on. You can follow the links in the show notes to see exactly what MapReduce is. But the bottom line is it's a way of, uh, if you can, quote unquote, rephrase your task in terms of MapReduce, the MapReduce framework will execute your task on a huge amount of data in a short period of time by spreading it over lots of computers and it'll handle all the details for you. Uh, and one, an underlying piece of that is GFS, the Google file system. It's a file system that they wrote. It's a distributed file system where it's tailored for the needs of Google, where they work with huge, huge files. And so like, I think the minimum allocation block in GFS is like 64 megabytes or something gigantic like that. Like you can, If you wanted to make a file with the letter A in it, it would be 64 megabytes. Uh, or, you know, actually, and that might just be their chunk size and they have a small thing within that. But the point is, it's not like a file system on your personal computer. It's a distributed file system made for dealing with huge files across many machines that are, that are spread uh, through other data centers, uh, you know, and all, all around the world. Uh, and that's what they use to get, their, to get and store their data. And then on top of all that, they have Bigtable, which is kind of, you can think of it kind of like how you would build a 
a database on top of those other technologies where it's kind of like a SQL database. I don't think it actually does SQL, but it's a way to have structured data. Like you, instead of just having a bunch of files that have data in them, this is structured data and you can ask database type questions like give me the, the record for this person and it will have the person's name and email address or whatever. Uh, that's their database solution. Um, and none of those things, incidentally, are available for sale. And none of those things are, are as far as I know, open source at this point. Uh, the amount of time and money and you know, expertise that, that, that Google has spent building this infrastructure is basically the, the largest and most important expendi- technology expenditure the company has ever made in terms of what they got out of it. Because they run their business on these services and more. There's probably ones that we haven't even heard of. That there are probably ones that I haven't listed. And all of them are being revised. GFS, I think, is still coming up on version 2. Uh, Big Table was a successor to something else, I think. And they're always trying to go uh, beyond that. So they're not, they didn't just make these and then they build their business on it and forget about it. They're constantly being reevaluated, revised, and improved. Uh, it's kind of a shame they don't share them. But on the other hand, like I said, I think this is their big competitive advantage. Now, Facebook, next one. Another gigantic company with uh, probably more users than any other online service. But I think they're up to like, I don't even want to know what they're up to. Are they into the billions yet? Gosh, I don't think it's billions. But who knows? You know what? If we say it's not a billion, if it's not billions, then it, yeah. the show will be It may be like 500 million or something like that, but yeah. it's, it, it's big, right? Really. Uh, and so what they do in their data centers is they have custom hardware too. Uh and, and unlike Google, they've decided to create this open compute project, which I think we talked about in the past, where they want to share their design for their custom hardware in an open source kind of manner, hoping to uh, take advantage of the fact that they're not Google and say, well, we all collaborate and work on this open computing platform hardware design thing. Maybe we can compete with the Google's expertise because they kind of got there first and they have the most experience and they probably have the best people. But we want to have custom hardware too. And for the same exact reasons as Google, Data centers are a big part of their cost. They want to be as efficient as possible, as small as possible, but they also want to use the cheapest possible parts because, again, they have an expectation that their hardware is going to fail, so they're not buying super-duper fancy computers that are impossible to perturb. You can yank CPUs out of them while they're running and they, they don't blink an eye. No, they're buying cheap commodity hardware and building cheap commodity hardware that just has the features they need uh, and that uh, uses the minimal amount of electricity. I think Facebook was one also who's looking into using ARM CPUs in the data center instead of Intel simply because they use less power. Everyone's always making feints in that direction. It could just be to try to get better pricing from Intel, but uh, we'll see. Um, and then on top of that, they, they mostly use PHP to run their site, which is uh, sounds insane to most people, but that's what it was originally built on, and they just scaled up they from just there. Kept it. It they just kept it there. Yeah, well, they didn't just keep it as is. They, what they did is they built a PHP compiler, where it takes PHP and transforms it into C++ and then compiles it which is a tremendous boost in speed and is sort of the cornerstone of what makes Facebook actually work. It, there's some good presentations on this on the web. I should have found some for the show notes. I'm, I'm not sure I'll be able to again, but one of them was talking about how all of Facebook basically ends up being one compiled executable. Like, that's Facebook. That Like, they take all the, the reams and reams of PHP code and all that other stuff, and they what they get out of it is an executable that is Facebook. And, you know, it's recompiled and rebuilt like every night or whenever they do release and stuff. But it's, it's strange to think of one of the biggest sites, if not the biggest website on the Internet, being a compiled C++ executable. So you're, create- say, you're saying that when people want to go and create a, you know, a Facebook page, they're one of their designers, engineers, whoever, sitting inside Facebook. They want to go and sit down and say, oh, I'm adding a new feature. They're writing it in PHP. 
and then it compiles down to C++ or to C or whatever. From that? Yeah. Why not yeah, just called- why not just hire C to programmers? Because that would just take too long to write. I mean, the same reason you want to write in a high-level language. They're writing in PHP. They don't have to worry about pointers and allocations and, you know, Unicode strings and stuff like that. It's PHP handles that for them. Marco uh, should be thrilled to hear this. Well, you know, this is not a secret. If you Google for, this will be in the show notes, but Hip Hop for PHP. It's a source code transformer for PHP. But it's, they, uh, did they open source that? Is that out there? I, I think it is open source. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, it is. It's under the PHP license. Now, how useful this is to anyone else, but like this is, this is what was done years ago, and it's kind of what allows them to scale up like that. So, so they're taking a, a, you know something that pre, that existed before, but they've you know moved beyond with it. They've gone beyond just the user of PHP. Now they're doing something very different with it. They also have something called Thrift, which is a sort of framework for making remote procedural call interfaces, uh, basically sending messages from one machine to another to do something, uh, and it's distributed. Uh, type of thing again because they're in data centers spread all over the place and on top of thrift they built something called scribe which we actually use at work which is really neat it's a distributed logging service so that uh you can have all the machines log through scribe and the results of that logging are collected and routed according to you know a series of traffic direction rules eventually landing in a few repositories uh, and it's much better than having each individual machine log locally because then you're worried about running out of disk space for logs and get out something rotating the logs or you have to have something going from each machine and collecting the logs and then truncating them. Uh, and it's just a pain. But if you have network logging, then what happens with the, the network glitch or you know you get disconnected or the network partitions at some point, do you lose all those logging things? So Scribe is neat because it will do, do store and forward. If it can't talk to the network service that it wants to log to, it will start logging locally, and when the network thing comes back up, it will take what it spooled locally and shove it back out. Uh, very neat, uh, and, and you can imagine why that would be useful for a company like Facebook with tons of servers all over the place. And that's releases open source as well. Uh, so custom hardware and a bunch of custom infrastructure. And now, finally, Amazon. I tried to Google for this, and I couldn't tell. As far as I can tell, Amazon may be using stock hardware, or if they're using custom hardware, they aren't talking about it. Uh, but... Amazon has its own set of web services. Uh, there's S3 for storage, which is a generic content addressable storage system, uh, you know, massively distributed. Uh, lots of other services are built on S3 because they sell it. This is this was Amazon's thing. This Amazon said, look, we have to build these services to have the world's biggest e-commerce site. Uh, to recoup the cost of building the services, why don't we resell them? Because, you know, we think they're great. I think that was a great plan because when you make something for sale as a product, you will make it better than if it's internal only. Anyone who's ever worked at a company writing software knows that the, the tools written for only for internal use by the company are the worst tools ever. All, uh, you know, and the things you have to sell to customers, you can't get away with the crap you can get away with with an internal customer. Because if a guy down you know, in the other row complains about something, you can just go over there and say, oh, here's a workaround for you, or just be quiet, I'll get to it when I can. But if a customer complains, you, know, you change your software. So they made all their internal tools available or most of their internal tools available as external products and i'm sure that made those products way way better than they would have possibly been so amazon uses s3 internally but s3 is also a service that they sell to you and they make money on it i'm sure like for example dropbox is based on s3 dropbox doesn't do, do its own storage it uses s3 for storage and then amazon also has ec2 which is their amazon elastic compute cloud where it's sort of like a dynamic provisioning of hardware based on your needs so you you can design sort of a VM or a, you know a, a machine image and said this is this I need one of these machines to run my product and as your traffic increases for example 
you can expand out to have, okay, now you have a bunch more servers, and when your traffic decreases, we will take those servers away and use the hardware for somebody else. That's what's elastic about it. It's growing and shrinking, I guess. You're, you know. So that lets Amazon make effective use of its hardware, and it lets the customer not pay for hardware they're not using, uh, in theory. Um, and I thought I read, but again, could not find this on Google, I thought I read that very recently Amazon.com said that it had just decommissioned the last non-EC2 server running the actual Amazon.com website. In other words, Amazon.com, uh, you know, before EC2 existed, it was running on these custom servers and stuff. And they made EC2, and they've been migrating Amazon.com bit by bit huh. into EC2, and supposedly they are done with that now. And now Amazon.com, the actual flagship product, is running on EC2, Amazon's web service you know, computing thing that they sell. So they've done a, a different... They've all these three companies taken different paths, but Amazon has built its infrastructure and also decided to sell it. Google has built its infrastructure and jealously guards it. And Facebook is kind of in the middle where they took stuff that other people built and sort of, you know, bent it to their own use, but they've also built some stuff internally and released it as open source. And two of them are, are confirmed to be using completely custom hardware and Amazon we don't know. Now, this little tour of online services that, that are, are successful at scale is meant to be in contrast to what we know of the iCloud strategy and the iCloud data centers. And what we know about the iCloud data centers is very little. We know about the building in North Carolina, which is fancy and wonderful, and we know about their tax breaks and whatever else people wanted to report on about it. Yeah, I think it. they showed just one picture of it during the keynote. Yeah, they sh- all right, so during the keynote, and other times, I think even before that, they showed PR photos, obviously professionally taken by Apple's photography people from inside the data center saying, look at this. Isn't this fancy and futury? This is what's inside our data center. Isn't it cool? Right. Here's, here's and, a picture of a whole bunch of racks. You can't see what's in them or any, any, right, anything well, cool. In, in the information vacuum created by Apple absolutely never talking about what they use in their data centers, unlike all the other companies that I listed who have you know, seminars about what they have in their data centers. <laughs> Even Google will talk, will talk about it in vague terms. and you know, They just showed these pictures. So that's all people have to go on. And the Apple fans quickly latched onto that and said, hey, Looking at these pictures, can anyone tell me what's in all those racks? And so a bunch of people gave it a shot. And this one guy, Stephen Foskett, did the, the best job that I found. He, he obviously knows his computers. Obviously, if you work with these things as part of your job, you can probably identify the products just by what the cases look like because they have distinctive looks. They have you know plastic uh, bezels in the front of them, and, and they're different colors and different positions of lights and stuff. So what he thinks he sees in there is he sees... I'm going to read these names. I don't know what half of these things are. I know the companies, uh, but I don't know the particular products. But uh, you can follow the link in the show notes and then follow the links from his read up, uh, his write-up to the product pages for these products to see what they are. So he says he sees Teradata Extreme Data Appliance. I'm assuming that's a storage array. A bunch of HP ProLiant uh, servers. Uh, several NetApp devices, which I am familiar with. Uh, Isilon, yeah, Isilon storage, which was a storage company purchased by EMC earlier this year, uh, and a bunch of actually a bunch of filler panels, which are filled to fill the gaps and improve airflow. I think in the in the racks. Uh, someone in this chat room is complaining about how I pronounce the word B E Z E L. Right, it's pronounced. What is the correct pronunciation? Uh, bezel. 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 All right. Not like gazelle. Bezel. But yeah. I don't. I don't correct you, and people know what you're talking about. Who cares? Someone should correct it. me because I can't stand it when people say the words the wrong way. So yeah, it's that's a word I've never had to say before. Do you believe it? No, I've only ever seen it in, in descriptions of computers. Uh, uh, so at any rate, the, the the key point about this hardware that's been identified is that this person could identify it because those are all things that you can buy. If you have money and you go to NetApp, they will sell you one of those NetApp things. If you have money and you go to Teradata, they will sell you that refrigerator-looking 
thing for your data center. Same thing with the, all the HP uh, rack servers and the Isilon storage. These are all off-the-shelf off products that you can buy. So right away, Apple is in conflict with everybody but the possible exception on Amazon in that they're not doing custom hardware. All right. Now, everything else after this is hearsay. This might be hearsay, too, because he's just looking at a picture and guessing. But for all we know, those are, those are pictures taken of not even the data center that Apple uses in their stock photos. We have no idea where those came from. But uh, the thing that I hear about what Apple is running on this hardware is a bunch of off-the-shelf software. Uh, so, for example, I've heard from several different places that Apple is running Oracle, which is the, the big wig in the old-school database world, but is definitely not what the cool kids use these days because there's the no SQL databases and stuff like that or right. you know, things like Bigtable that Google built themselves. If Amazon is running Oracle, maybe they are because it does seem like it's kind of suited to e-commerce sites. But uh, well, actually, didn't Amazon do Cassandra or something like that? They have one of those no SQL databases, didn't they? Uh, no, Dynamo. Dynamo Amazon did. But at any rate, uh, we're not quite sure there. Um, but the big one that blew me away and the reason this topic came up is that somebody was playing with the iCloud betas or maybe they were yeah it must have been, maybe they're playing with iTunes beta they were playing with some some iCloud stuff and looking at the network packets going back and forth uh, and I have a link to this in the show notes this was at infiniteapple.net and what they saw did, do you know the story that I'm talking about no man? I don't because you would have brought it up because it's it's a it's a kicker so what they saw going over the wire indicated to them and it seems pretty conclusive for me from looking at it uh, that Apple is using Microsoft Azure, A-Z-U-R-E, if I'm not pronouncing that right. Azure? Azure. Yeah. Uh, do you know what that is? Don't. First, it's a Microsoft product, uh, but it's Microsoft's, like, it's Microsoft's equivalent of, I guess, Google App Engine. Google App Engine <laughs> is a service where you write an application designed in a particular way, and Google runs it for you on top of their distributed infrastructure. Well, if you were to write a Microsoft Azure application, you write it in a particular way, and it will run on Microsoft's data centers across their distributed sort of architecture, right? Now, the two things that blow me away about this is that, A, Apple is using a Microsoft product in their service, which is pretty unheard of because all the other guys I listed are all running Linux for the most part, and Unix has been the king of the, you know, the only person who was bucking the Unix trend for decades has been Microsoft with their thing, like Windows NT and all that stuff, you know. And the serious server people were all, oh, we would never run Windows in the data center. That's crazy talk. You know, I used Windows NT once when it was version 3.1, and the video card driver crashed my machine. I'm never using that again, right? So I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that Microsoft's server technology has vastly improved since then, but it does have the reputation of not being, like, top caliber, uh, mostly because all the big guys don't use it. Now, there, usually there are obvious reasons for the big guys not using it. They're competing with Microsoft. Like, Google is sure as heck not going to use Microsoft software in its data centers if it can help it. In fact, Google doesn't even want to use it on the desktop if it can help it. Uh, but, you know, everyone else, Amazon, Facebook, they're not Windows server shops. Windows server stuff is more expensive uh, than Linux. Obviously, Linux is free. Uh, these companies are in conflict with Microsoft in several different ways, and in general, the Microsoft doesn't have a good, stuff doesn't have a good rep. So here's Apple, which was the sworn enemy of Microsoft several decades ago, choosing to use Microsoft's data center infrastructure in its flagship product. Uh, now, all of this off-the-shelf 
hardware and off-the-shelf software makes me think that this deployment, if it scales to the level that Apple hopes that it will scale, like if iCloud is as big as, as, it, as it seems to be and as it could be and as Apple hopes it will be, this seems to me that it will be the largest ever deployment of off-the-shelf hardware and software products working together. This will be like a, a litmus test for all these products, like Oracle will say, we, we can run the biggest data centers in the world. They're going to say, well, why doesn't Google use you for, to run their search engine? They have custom stuff. Well, they could run Google and Oracle. Right? You know, same thing with EMC and, and Isilon. You know, we can do scalable storage up to petabytes, and we have no problem and no scaling things at all. And, and Microsoft Azure, we are the data center infrastructure for any of your applications. It will be distributed evenly. It will scale beautifully. You'll love it. <laughs> I guarantee you none of those guys have been put into a situation where they're expected to have 100, 200, 300 million users because there are very, very few services that have that kind of level of usage. There's Google, there's Amazon, there's Facebook, and maybe one or two others that I'm forgetting. And those guys don't use that off-the-shelf software. So here's Apple completely bucking the trend of all other successful online services and choosing, for reasons that are mysterious to me, to use, it seems, based on what we're able to intuit from this, off-the-shelf hardware, off-the-shelf software, as their underlying infrastructure. Now, in one respect, you can say, well, they're doing that because they realize this is not the, this is the, I think I've said this polite rephrase before, but I love it. It's their expertise lies elsewhere as a polite way of saying they suck at this stuff. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have the people or the talent or the time to create an infrastructure to rival the infrastructure that Amazon has created in its entire history, that Google has created in its entire history, or even the, the ability to do what Facebook has done and start from humble beginnings and just like tack stuff on and build up something that can run your incredibly big, complicated service on top of it just through sheer force of will and, I'm sure, lots of money. Uh, maybe they didn't have time for that because Molmi, you know, blew up <laughs> fairly recently or had its, bad, had its bad spell fairly recently. So they don't have time to do that. So maybe this was their only choice. They can't build it themselves. You can't build it. You're Apple. You got a bazillion dollars. Can't build. Let's buy. Uh, but my question is, like, who's the guy who is responsible for making iCloud work, and he has to do it by assembling hardware and software from other vendors? And if you ever work with other vendors, you, you know that no matter what their salespeople say, you care much more about your success than they do, especially once they get your money you know, and, and your support contracts signed. It's a struggle. It's a struggle with one vendor. And it, I can imagine if you were taking several vendors' products and stretching them beyond the limits that they've ever been stretched before, trying to get them all to work in concert. If you have some sort of problem, you can't figure out which vendor to call. There's no one you can call who's going to figure out your problem for you. You're just going to have to go round robin around them as they blame each other for whatever your problem just was. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong by this. I, I would like this stuff to all work beautifully. I would like Apple to have the most talented data center engineers working to put this together. I would like all these vendors' claims about the supposed scalability and reliability of their products to be 100% true. Uh, at this point, I'm just not, I'm just not seeing it. I'm, I'm not confident. Um, so we'll see. We'll see when this launches. We'll see how it performs especially in the beginning, maybe their traffic won't be that bad. Maybe they'll do what, what Facebook did, for example, start with off-the-shelf things, some dude writing something in PHP, and just apply knowledge and money to it from that point to modify it until it works. Hmm. Uh, Apple doesn't like to talk about the server-side stuff at all. Uh, they don't like to talk about any of their ma internal magic. Like We do stuff behind the scenes that you don't want to know about, 
and we present you with the finished product, which is beautiful, and you give us money for. But they do well, not. That, like that's true with all their stuff. They don't, you know, for the longest yeah, time. I mean, it, it was. I just think it's a natural evolution for them to want to keep this stuff. You know, don't don't worry yeah. about it. We're taking care yeah, of it. They don't tell you how they do their industrial design, right. how they design their applications. They don't tell you anything. So it makes sense, yes, that they wouldn't tell you about the data centers. But again, it is at odds with all the other people who do data center stuff. Even Google, who completely jealously hoards the details of how to do it. Like you can't, by going to these Google seminars and reading their white papers, you cannot do what Google did. You can know what they did and try to reproduce it, but they don't give you, you know, like here's the blueprint if you want to make a data center just like Google's do exactly this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but you know why? So, why so? Why is there the expectation then that Apple would do that when clearly they don't have to? It's it's not the expectation. It's more like one of these things is not like the other. Apple wants to play with these big boys, but is doing everything differently. Now that's not to say they're going to fail because you could say that almost about anything. Like when Apple makes their handheld devices, everybody else was doing one thing, and Apple did something else with iOS and the iPhone, right? And everybody else was doing one thing, and Apple did something different with the iPod. Fewer features, you know. No hardware keyboard, uh, closed app store, not licensing the operating system, not open sourcing it. They've been on the contrary side of several industry trends many, many times. The difference, I think, in this case, maybe is that they're not at odds with other things that are failures or are unproven. You know, like they, Apple was at odds with all other smartphones. But before Apple came along, let's be honest, all other smartphones sucked. No, how many people had smartphones? They were just geeks who were gluttons for punishment, and those things had horrible interfaces. And even the people who owned them could not be convinced that they loved these things. <laughs> you know, so it's not like Apple was coming into a market where people loved their smartphones and they couldn't they couldn't get their fingers off them. They were downloading apps left and right, and they were just loving it. And Apple came along completely contrary to them and stomped them. No, they came into a market where nobody had figured out how to make a decent smartphone. Nobody was using apps on their phone except for like a Java bejeweled app and you know the SMS <laughs> app and maybe email, right? And they came in and said, we have a better way to do this. Now, here, Apple's coming into a scenario where several very large, very successful companies have more or less figured out what it takes to build successful online services, services that are way more successful than anything online Apple has ever done. And this is not a young market in terms of uh, who the leaders are. These companies are the second or third generation of kings of the Internet. This is where Apple's coming in and doing things differently. Uh, and, and the other difference is they're doing things differently in sort of a secret way. Like when they introduce a product that is very different than establishment, it's clear that to everybody that Apple is doing something different. It's, you know, it's like, whoa, here's, here's a product that's very different from everybody else. And, and like it's a differentiator, right? But when they're doing the data center, they're not talking about how their data centers are different. And the only reason we're discovering this is people are, you know, digging around in there and trying to see how they are different. It's, it's behind the scenes different. It's not different in a way that helps them in terms of marketing or differentiation. Uh, I don't know if that makes a difference or not, but this, this intrigues me, this battle of how you build data centers, because the ability to build that, that skill, building data centers, is clearly a skill of the future, if you want to describe it in the uh, say-anything way. No one's going to get that reference, huh? Kickboxing <laughs> sport of the future, anybody? <laughs> I've seen Steve that movie. Yeah, I have. All right. John Cusack. So data centers, skill of the future, because it's hard to imagine the most successful company in the world in 2085 not having a gigantic data center full of something. You know what I mean? 
So this will definitely be a skill that if Apple wants to be around for my great-grandchildren and be significant and important, which I'm sure if you ask Steve Jobs, he wants them to, they got to figure this out. Uh, maybe they have figured it out. Maybe they're going to get a leg up on everybody else. I don't know. Uh, it's the, the final thing I want to say about this is that it is out of character for Apple to rely so much on other vendors, don't you think? Like they still want to own every single thing that they do. They want, they want to have contracts locked up for their suppliers. They want to be able to have multiple sources for everything. They want to de- design their own uh, system on a chip. They want to design all their own software and have control of just everything along the pipeline. They do not want to rely on any other parties, especially competitors. But here they are filling their data centers with stuff, many, many of which are made by competitors. HP is making you know, WebOS and the touchpad, clearly a competitor. Uh, Oracle, I guess not really a competitor. The storage one, the storage people are probably not competitors. But Microsoft, I would say you have to say they're still a competitor, and that's like the backbone of their operating system. But what, their- if, what if it's just something as simple as saying, John, the, the right tool for the right job, and it just so happens that this is, for whatever Apple's thinking is, that this tool made by, sure, one of our competitors, is, this is the right tool for this job until we have our own solution or until there's a better tool. We're going to use this because this does what we need, and it's the best tool. Could it be that simple? The Apple MO on stuff like hardware is not to say, let me look at the market and find the best system on a chip for smartphones. Their MO is to say, we looked at all of the system on chips that are available, and none of them is exactly tailored to our needs. They all have some subsystem that we're not interested in, or they take too much power, or they're too slow. So we're going to commission the design of our own system on a chip that does exactly what we needed to do. Like that's that's been their the way they operate with almost anything that they have to do externally is to not accept what is being offered to them, but to ask for more. Take take the CPU and the MacBook Air. They didn't go to Intel and said, what's the best chip you've got that we can fit in this awesome skinny little notebook? They went to Intel and said, we've got this awesome skinny little notebook and nothing you're offering us fits in there. Can you make us a new chip, only for us, that has the requirements that we need of it to fit inside this little thing? And Intel did it. That's how they work. So in this case, maybe they did that with these vendors. I don't know. Maybe they went to the vendors and said, nothing you have satisfies our needs, but will you build us this custom thing? because we'll buy a bazillion of them and fill our data center in North Carolina with them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Again, without the details, we can't know how that's working, but it, it just seems out of character. Now, I guess one part of it does make sense. Is Apple pulling out of that market, like stopping the XServe line and everything? That fits with this because Apple, it's Apple saying, look, we're not going to do data center stuff because it's embarrassing for us to make a server but then not be able to use it in our own stuff because it's not good enough or cheap enough or whatever. So it's clear that this is not our forte. Let's stop making server hardware like this. Let's stop making rack mount server hardware. We're, not, we're just not in that business. And then when they go to vendors, they can say, hey, look, we stopped our server line. We're totally not competing with you guys. But now we mean to buy your one U servers and your, your storage and stuff like that. Even though our professional people loved our XServe raids and they loved doing all that stuff and it was so easy to manage, we just got to get out of that business. So all of our customers will now be buying your stuff or something. So we're buddies, right? Let's buy some of your server hardware. Even though these companies do compete with them, HP is obviously competing them with, with the touchpad and webOS phones and stuff like that. The, the server hardware people don't view Apple as a competitor because they're not. And in big companies, segments of the company, especially big companies that are not Apple, segments of the company operate as somewhat independent entities where the guy who's in charge of server is rubbing his hands at this contract to fill this data center with hardware. And he doesn't care whether or not it's in the strategic best interest of HP versus a company like Apple where... If you're talking to some 
even like a VP of some department and trying to do a deal with him, he's sure as hell not doing anything that's not in the best interest of Apple, even if it's good for his department, because all that stuff's got to go through the chain of command and it's never going to get approved if it doesn't, if it's not in the strategic interest of the company. Apple is very good about operating, uh, a, a being of one mind about the com- direction of the company versus other companies which have little kingdoms in them that can operate more independently, it seems. So that's all I've got on my, that was my main topic for the day. What was a good topic? Way better than the, the one I was thinking of. We still have time for mine because I think it's a relatively short one. All right, let's go for it. Well, we we'll also just want to say thanks to uh, felttip.com, makers of Sound Studio 4. This is John Syracuse's go-to app when it comes to recording, editing, and producing audio. This is what he uses. It's what he's always used. And same for me. It's my go-to app. It's a Mac OS X app or just an OS X app for recording, edit, editing, and creating digital audio on your computer. It doesn't matter whether it's a podcast, spoken word, or music. And from this high-quality master, you can save in all of the major formats, WAV, AC, MP3, and John Syracuse's very favorite format of all time, Og Vorbis. And uh, you can get Sound Studio 4 on the Mac App Store. Just search for Sound Studio. Or go to feldtip.com slash ss. And seriously, people always ask me, Dan, what app do you use to record? What, I, I want to record something. What should I use? Use this. This is what you should use. So thanks uh, to feldtip.com for making this show possible. Og Vorbis. You know, speaking of audio formats, did I ever tell you my, my one and only uh, communicating with G- Steve Jobs story? Yeah, never heard that. Maybe this can be our second thought. This is great. Hey, no, you've been holding out on me. It's a short one. No, it's not. You know, so everyone, everyone emails Steve Jobs at some point, I think. Uh, have you ever emailed him? No, I would never do something like that. You never emailed? Not no, even? No, of course well, not. I, you, know why, you know why you didn't email him? Because when you were young enough to, to think that you should email Steve Jobs, you were a PC weenie. Not, not, not true at all. Totally true. You're building your own PCs. You're yeah, but my, the, com- the computer I used was a Mac. What I did for a living was PCs. Yeah. You're half PC weenie. All right. But at any rate, I was young and foolish, and, uh, and Steve was back at Apple. And I, I sent him a couple of emails over the course of my uh, life. I, even, even when I was younger, I knew enough like, not to write him a dissertation. I, I would keep my emails like Be the equivalent sentences. of being a bartender at a college bar, okay? And, and, and all you do is uh, pour Coors Light for people. When you get home, does that mean you should drink Coors Light? No. <laughs> You're still stuck on that, huh? I just want to be clear about it. Don't be offended. Yeah, no, I understand the analogy. I'm just saying it's, you it's as, as you say, if you, want, if you want to insult me for being a geek, insult me then in the right way. All right, well, you know, that's, it's a guilt by association. <laughs> I, I'll live, I can live with that. All right. Uh, so anyway, I, I would always try to keep them short because, guys, if you want your email to have any impact, you just have to figure out what it is that you want to say. And you know, like when you see those emails that have like an executive summary at the top, that's got to be the whole email. <laughs> the whole email, just one, yeah. one just couple sentences. Exact, just the executive summaries. He's the executive, and you're summarizing for him. And this was before, like, this was 1997, 98, when he just came back. So maybe he actually read his email. So I would send him stuff all the time. Uh, and at one point, I sent him an email. Like, I think iTunes Music Store had just been introduced, and I, and I was pissed off that they're producing lossy music. We've talked about this on past shows. I don't like, you know, it was music quality that was lower quality than CD. It seemed like a step backwards. Digital downloading, good. Crappy compression, bad. Hmm. So I said basically that I thought that when you bought a song, you should buy the rights to the best quality version of that song. And even if they send you the crappy MP3, you should have the rights to the higher quality version as well. So if you were a masochist, you could download 
the big 22 megabyte, you know, uh, uncompressed version, uncompressed quote unquote, you know, the CD quality version. At the very least, don't make it worse, right? Uh, and I said that Microsoft had a lossless audio format that they were using for this or could potentially use for this. I think if they were using like Plays for Sure or whatever, whatever Microsoft's failed music initiative was at this particular time, I think I referenced it and noted that they had a compressed but not lossy audio format. I forget what the name was. Uh, and the reason I remember this email among the five or six I've ever sent in my life is that he actually replied to it in his typical one-sentence reply fashion. Uh, uh, he asked, he's, he, I forget what the reply was. Basically, it was one sentence that said, it was referencing the Microsoft lossless audio formats, and it said, uh, what are these? We are not aware of them. <laughs> right. So now when you, get, when you get a response like that, first of all, it's not just like him saying yes or no. He, it's a question. It's a question. So, you get a response. So it wants a reply. But on the other hand, if this was, for example, one of my parents sending that reply, but like, take the words you just put in that sentence and paste them into Google and hit return. You're feeling lucky. Like, it's not rocket science, but he's a busy man. I feel like it would have taken less time than, than to, uh, you know. And also, he said, we are not aware. It's not, not just I am not aware of these as an individual, as a CEO, but it seems like he, you know. Had a talked, conversation about it. Talked, talked to somebody and said, what is this Microsoft losses audio codec you're thinking, you're thinking about? Someone mentioned, have you heard of that? And no, he goes, like, no, we are not aware of that. So what I did I always Google it and write a one sentence reply of this is what it is, but then underneath it provide in a passive aggressive manner the link to the Google search that would have led you to the same information. Um, and of course, you know, he didn't reply to that. Wow. So I can't help being a jerk, I guess. Uh, so fast forward about six to eight months. Yeah. And, and Apple is. Uh, I think they were on stage during one of their, or maybe it was even on, on stage, maybe it was just on a site, uh, on their site, but they released some iTunes update. And as part of this, it was in either an iTunes update or a QuickTime update. And as part of it, they released a new thing called the Apple Lossless Audio Codec, which exists to this day. You can encode audio in it. Now, I don't know if you can connect those dots and say, because I whined about You're Apple. You're saying you, you take credit for that. I don't know if I take credit for it, but the timing seems strange. Like, first of all, who in their right mind makes their own lossless audio compression format? I don't think Apple lossless is super-duper awesome. I'm sure it has some kind of compression in it. It's not just an uncompressed audio screen, but I don't know. I don't know how much technical underpinning there is to Apple lossless. Is it just run-of-the-mill? Is it not even as good as FLAC? I don't know. But the fact is that when I wrote the email, Steve Jobs claims to have no knowledge uh, of Microsoft's lossless audio formats. Maybe Apple is already working on theirs. Uh, but the bottom line is that some some results seem to happen from my email. Now, did they release music in Apple Office? No. So really, I was just basically ignored. But I always found it funny that uh, that series of events happened, and that you know, in my mind, I like to think that that had some some uh, you know effect towards them making that format. Yeah, you're going to be in one reality, of these old. Uh, you're going to be one of these old guys who sits out in front of the uh, the barber shop or the drugstore. Some that zipper, I invented that, and in, you know, in '78. I have other stories that I can't share uh-huh. that have much tighter connections. Between, you could, could you share them with me offline? Yeah, probably. Okay. Between my complaints and Apple doing things, but they are much, much less significant, and they don't involve Steve Jobs at all. Mm. Uh, so that, that's my one interaction with Steve Jobs. My one two-way interaction. I have occasionally sent things, and then there's been a one-line reply that's just a yes or no type of thing. But Do you think he, uh, uh, he knows who you are by name? No, no. 
But I was speaking of Steve Jobs. We're on this topic. I was. Did you see uh, Gruber's wife's tweet during WWDC? I only saw it because he retweeted it. Amy uh, Amy Jane. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, her thing was uh, it was it was two quoted sequences, which I assumed to be communications between one of the parents and their and their son. Mm. And it was uh, Daddy uh, got to talk to Steve Jobs, and the kid's reply was, "Did he get to talk to Odd Job? Because that would be cool." Something like. <laughs> So that was that was the tweet, <laughs> right? And of course, then I had to immediately ask, "Wait, did you talk to Steve Jobs when you were at WWDC?" <laughs> and he told me he did not. Uh, but uh, but the reason I thought he might have is like, you know, after Jobs gives the keynote, he comes down like into the audience and, and you like and mingles, I guess, right? Now, obviously, you know, you can't. The odds of you getting close to him are slim because he's surrounded by senior Apple people possibly also by bodyguards or other PR bouncers that are keeping out the rabble. Uh, Gruber noted that uh, Dan Bricklin got to talk to Steve Jobs after the keynote. So apparently it is possible to go from the audience, wander over and say, hey, Steve, uh, good keynote. I like that. You know, whatever dumb thing you're going to say. But on the other hand, Dan Bricklin invented VisiCalc, uh, which was a big part of what made the Apple II successful. So I think he probably has a little bit more chance of getting past the outer perimeter of going to talk to Steve Jobs and anybody else. And the other thing is that if you're going to go talk to Steve Jobs out of the keynote, you're not going to have a meaningful exchange about anything. Assuming he even acknowledges you, what the heck are you going to say to him? I really love you, Steve. I love your products. been using them for years. And he's going to say thank you. And you're going to shake his hand if you're lucky. Then you're going to move on. So it's not like you're really getting anything out of that. You know what I mean? And he's sure as hell not signing autographs. So don't try to make him sign your MacBook, right? But I would still have been very jealous if uh, Gruber had talked to him. And so either he did and isn't telling me or didn't. Uh, but that is, that is a possibility. Next time you're at a keynote, you want to be that guy, give it a shot. I, I, I personally think if, if John Gruber did talk to Steve Jobs, he, he might have told his wife, but he wouldn't tell us. I don't know. I don't think he'd be able to keep that to himself. Oh, trust <laughs> me. Trust me. He has no problem lying. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He likes to lie to you. That's a well thing. <laughs> That's a given. Yeah. Yeah, but like that's the thing, though. Steve Jobs would know who John Gruber is. He quoted him. He yeah, he would know who he site. is. Like, it, I'm sure he, he knows who he is. You know what I mean? So it, it could totally happen, right? So, if you were going to be a CEO of a of a large company, who would you model yourself after? The guy who retired with his millions and doesn't work anymore. Because mm. I would be the worst. Million, like these guys who are CEOs of successful companies. Like once I became independently wealthy, I would never work again. So I was going to say Paul Newman. Does he? I guess he kind of like didn't do anything. Like he eats the salad dressing, and well, he you know like yeah, he, he gave a lot of money to charity. He didn't did seem hands on in that company. He he instilled some values, set the thing up, and yeah, and then you, know, you just you it, just walk away. You show up on Letterman once in a right, while. He's, and, he's skiing in, in in the Aspen in Aspen in Colorado, and right. just you know riding horses or doing whatever it is, racing cars, doing whatever Paul Newman does. That's I would not be like. Here's the here's the weird thing. If I became independently wealthy. I would never work again, but what I would do with my wealth and free time would closely resemble what people do in, in startup companies. I would just probably not be successful at all at it, but that's, that would be my hobby, you know what I mean? But I would not model myself after any of the CEOs of successful companies who are still working. Even Bill Gates stayed in it way longer than I would because he's a bazillionaire many times over. Like they have, they're workaholics. They have the drive to succeed. They have the drive to build great things beyond themselves. I have the drive to never have to work again. You would just sort of build a <laughs> fortress of solitude and retreat to that. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. If you, if you gave me like Bill Gates style money, it would just be, yeah. Would, you, bu- would, would you build underground? I would not build underground. No, definitely not. You wouldn't because, have like a shelter? 
I don't know, but I wouldn't do the thing where like you would make yourself a bomb shelter or stuff like that. I bet you would. And the, re- would. and the reason you're not admitting to it is because you don't want me to know about it. To know about my secret lair, yes. Right. No, but what what I would do is like uh, build software and like hire people to build me software. <laughs> like it would be if I'm telling you, if anybody wants to give me several billion dollars, it will be the biggest boon to the, to the Mac and iOS independent software market than you've ever seen. Because I would distribute that money to every great developer. I would like make them offers they can't refuse. You know, like hire them on Marco Armit. Here's your million dollars. Here's what I want you to write. You know what I mean? Or yeah. think of whatever you want to write. We'll just it would be completely a commune of like writing cool software and making cool hardware and just yeah. Right. So it's probably a good thing that I don't have billions of dollars because that seems like a huge waste of money. But that's what I would do with my money. But I sure as hell would not continue to go to a job hmm. and you know fight and compete with other people. Well, on that positive note, we'll end. But we'll, we'll be back next week on uh, on Friday to talk. You can follow John Syracusa on Twitter, S I R A C U S A, no Z in Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin, also on Twitter, no Z in Dan Benjamin. Thanks to FreshBooks.com and Feltip.com, and uh, those people who've been rating the show in iTunes, thank you. People who have been donating to help Five by Five, thank you. People who have been eagerly anticipating John's write-up online, you'll have to wait. Mm. Have a good week. You too.